You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. Today, our guest is Rick Wallace. Rick is the CEO of KLA Tencore, I think one of the most interesting and exciting companies in the semiconductor uh, equipment space, uh, and perhaps in the Valley. Uh, really a, a company that's been enormously profitable and successful over the years. Maybe not one that is a household name like some of the others, but certainly I think one of the ones that's really part of the backbone of the Valley. Uh, Rick has been the CEO there f- since January, so he's new on the job, and I'm sure has some interesting insights now that he's taken over that, that job. Rick's background is, is in electrical engineering, so he's an electrical engineer from the University of uh, Michigan and has a master's degree in engineering management from Santa Clara University, but he wised up and came over to Stanford's um, executive education program, so we're glad to have him as, well, kind of as alumni uh, here as well. So let me um, turn it over to Rick. Thanks for coming, Rick. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you all for this opportunity. Um, I'm going to talk about a couple things regarding KLA Tencore. I will touch on vision, values, and strategy, and then obviously be in a position to, to take questions. Let me just start with uh, who we are. As Kathy mentioned, uh, KLA Tencore might not be a household name. The company is 30 years old. We were founded in 1976. It was a venture-backed enterprise at the beginning, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we are based here in the Bay Area in San Jose, and we make equipment for the semiconductor industry. So anyone that manufactures semiconductors uh, will have our equipment in their facilities in order to inspect and measure their product as they're building it. Uh, we're focused on those two fields, inspection and measurement, and I'll talk a little bit about why we chose that and, and why we think about it as we go forward. Do we change our strategy? Uh, we're bigger than, right now we're a little bit over $2 billion, probably about $2.5 billion in sales uh, this year. And we're, 70% of our sales are outside of the U.S. And this becomes a very important factor, especially as the company goes forward. Most of our business is now in Asia. And for Silicon Valley, uh, there isn't silicon in Silicon Valley anymore. The reason this is called Silicon Valley is because the semiconductor industry really grew here. But today, in fact, very few semiconductors are made in the Valley. And so for companies like ours, we have to be very globally minded because our customer base has moved primarily to Asia. We have a large market share in the markets that we serve. We're 2x our closest rival. And our closest rivals are uh, some very formidable competitors. Hitachi is one, and Applied Materials is the other. And both of those are uh, people we pay a lot of attention to, to maintain that position. But our strategy, and I'll talk about this, is to have performance leadership, which leads to large market share. Our market cap is somewhere north of $9 billion. And we have 5,500 employees, about 3,500 of whom are in the Bay Area, and the rest are throughout our our different uh, facilities around the world. We do sales and service in probably 22 countries, uh, but we also do engineering development in places like Israel, where we have a facility. We do some development in Russia. We have development in Taiwan, we have a development center in China, we have activity in Singapore, and we have a large development activity going on in India right now. And our our basic value proposition is we enable Moore's Law. And Moore's Law is the continuing adding in uh, the capability and doubling the number of transistors on a semiconductor every 18 months and at the same time reducing cost at about a 30% per annum. So the reason all these applications, consumer applications, are becoming available 
uh, to you and why iPods make sense and cell phones are getting more capable and cheaper is because semiconductors continue to get more productive. And so uh, our job is to help people find the defects that would otherwise cause these devices to fail. So we say you can't fix what you can't find. And they're getting more and more challenging. We're finding defects on the order of 30, 40 nanometers. So we're well into nanotechnology. And these defects that matter get smaller every year. And so our tools have to get more capable in order to handle them. And you can't control what you can't measure. So in one case, we're trying to find flaws. In the other case, we're trying to measure parameters, whether it's the thickness of films or the width of lines or the registration as the device is being built over time. So we make inspection and measurement equipment. This is one of the early products we made. I think we sold it for about $150,000, and our customers thought that was really expensive back in the late 70s. I'm not sure what the bill of materials, in other words, how, much, how many parts were in it, but my guess it was on the order of 1,000. This is our latest of the same technology uh, serving the same kind of application. This tool has 72,000 parts. It has 10 million lines of code. And it sells for about $25 million. And they still think it's too expensive. The, um, but the challenge is, is, as technology has evolved and people are trying to make smaller and smaller, smaller uh, semiconductors, the defect and the challenges associated with finding and fixing those has just gotten more and more challenging. So our technology has to match. Not only that, we have to be ahead of the technology because we have to anticipate what's coming in two to three years. So that's a little bit about who we are. I want to switch topics and I'll come back to more about KLA 10 core, but I want to talk about three uh, areas here. One is the idea of, of why a vision is important. And I did a little market survey before this class, and I talked to a number of you about why you're here and, and what you're looking at doing. And uh, a lot of people, there are going to be a lot of startups coming out of this class. That's what I got from that. And it, it makes a lot of sense that this is a, the hub of entrepreneurialism. And companies like ours have venture funds where we end up funding startups because some of the great innovations come out of those. But also I'll talk about innovation coming out of companies like ours. But as a company, no matter whether it's small or large, you need to know where you're going. You need to have a sense of vision of, of where you want to go. And it needs to be well understood throughout the whole enterprise. And you'll be amazed in how many companies that doesn't happen. And people aren't sure about where the company is going. And it's harder to get alignment if you don't have a common vision. Second one is, is your sense of values, is what guides you. And this becomes more important as companies become bigger. It becomes important if you're thinking about how you want to run a company but also if you want to join one. Uh, my view is if you're not in alignment with the values in the company, you, eventually you're going to have a problem. And on the other hand, if you are, th that will be a good fit and that becomes very important, is to share the values with the other people that you're working with. And strategy, of course, there can be very different strategies, but the essence of it is what makes you unique and why will people buy from you. Uh, I'll talk about that a little bit on the next slide. You know, I, th I certainly think about these three constituents. And I think everybody starting businesses or entering them needs to recognize there are multiple constituents and they are not the same. Uh, shareholders are certainly different, or investors are different than customers, which are different than employees. Uh, but they all matter. And I used to ask this question in internal meetings. I would say, which of these is the most important? And of course, the finance people would say shareholders. And the sales guys would say the customers are. And the HR people would say employees are. And it's a bit of a trick question because you, you can't ignore any of these constituents, whether you're private or public. And the essence, the essence of this is shareholders, they want to know why they should invest in you. 
whether you're private or public, why should they put their money in you? And that's about a financial transaction. And what they want to earn in return for that investment, much, it has to match the risk associated with the investment. So obviously, if you have more risk, people are going to expect higher return potential. Uh, and as companies get more stable, and this is measured, as you all know, it's measured against very safe investments like T-bills. But their needs are different than customers. Customers are going to ask, why should they buy from you? They're going to have choices. And, and we think a lot about that at KLA 10 Core is why should customers buy our product? How do we meet their needs going forward? And how do we make sure that, that we secure the market shares that we've enjoyed? In most of the markets we serve, we're probably somewhere on 70 to 75% market share. And the reason we're there is because we anticipate what customers need and we develop so solutions for them uh, in anticipation of what they're going to need. We also charge typically have premiums in pricing. We get anywhere from 20 to 30% higher prices than all our competitors. And you can only do that if you provide unique value. Uh, but the other constituent that's very important is employees. And why should people work for you? And clearly in a very small group, then perhaps everybody has a large share of the equity and, and there are different motivations. But as any enterprise gets larger, this becomes more and more important. And especially in fields like ours, which are high technology, the only real long-term advantage you have is your people because they're the one that create the new products and so to ignore your people is to lose your competitive edge and a lot of companies have done that and that's why you see companies that go up and come down is they don't understand that they have to motivate their employees there is a trade-off that you have to make and in my job uh, you can try to pretend that you can optimize all three but the reality is you are making trade-offs and the things that you would like to do for your customers or your employees uh, might not be beneficial to shareholders. And so you have to be mindful of that as you manage the company. And clearly you want to take a long-term view, but you do get pressures from shareholders that aren't so long-term. I'm going to walk you through a little bit of history on the company. This is a revenue graph from when we started the company. I shouldn't say we. I, I didn't join until late in here. But when the company was started, it was back here in 76. And this is the revenue. And you can see we're at about... Uh, 2.2, 2.3 billion for 2006. The other thing you'll notice is the cyclical nature of this, and this reflects the fact that semiconductors is a very cyclical business, and equipment is also cyclical. Um, this was the 2000 bubble that some of you might not remember, but um, I, I, I'm finally forgetting. And we finally uh, exceeded the revenues there. But you can see the growth rate has been very steady and solid, and it has been profitable. I think we've had 15 straight years of profitable quarters. So we've managed, even through the cycles, to, to continue to be profitable. But I want to walk you through some of these decisions, not just to tell you about KLI 10 Core, but just give you some thoughts for your own. One of the... Uh, first one on here is the question of focus. When Ken Levy, the KL of KLA, founded the company, he had a business plan, and it had two businesses on it. He was going to do mask inspection, and masks are the things that go into lithography tools that image the devices in semiconductors. And they were done manually, and he thought, you know, I can automate that, but I also have a plan to do blood analyzers. Similar kind of technology, both image processing. And the great thing about this, thought Ken, was I can diversify my risk. And I can be in two markets, and they're kind of off-cycle each other. And it'll be great, because he'd been in the semiconductor industry, equipment industry, and he knew that was cyclical. So he want to have a balanced approach. Sounds like it makes sense, right? So he goes to 146 investors before the first one says yes. There's another lesson in that. 146 times people said no to the business plan before the first person said yes. And when the first person said yes, what do you think they told them? Pick. 
You can only do one. And the reason you can only do one is because you need to focus. You need to focus on what you're going to do. Uh, he picked mass inspection. He thought he had a great plan for blood analyzers, but the VCs were smart enough to say, you need to focus. It's going to be hard enough to do a startup. And so the lesson there, at least for me, and I'll come back to this idea, is you do need to focus on where your energies are. The second one in, uh, number two here, and the revenues were still very small back then, was the idea of charging for service. Up until this time in our industry, service had been given away by the people that sold equipment. And the rationale was the new sales paid for the service. And he wanted to change the business model because he viewed that service would be a drag on the P&L. And the idea of charging for service would create a new business and annuity inside of the business. Well, he's trying to get an IBM, sell the first machine in IBM. The sales guy goes up to IBM. It's February. It's Burlington, Vermont. Uh, and the guy calls back and says, Ken, I got good news and bad news. Good news is they're ready to buy. You finally cracked IBM. Now, IBM at this time is 25% of the market. They make their own equipment. It's a huge accomplishment. He'd never sold anything to IBM before. And the sales guy's going, the downside is they were not going to pay for service. It's not going to work. And Ken says, cold up there? The guy says, yeah, it's February, Ken. You got a coat? Put it on. Leave. He didn't want to take the business unless he got the service contract because he knew once he gave away the service contract, he would never get another chance to sell it to IBM. He got the service contract. And the rest of the companies then followed, and the rest of the industry then followed. And I'd say arguably changed the dynamics in the equipment industry where service became something we charged for and created a huge annuity stream. Today we do $400 million in service a year, and it's profitable for the company, and it continues to grow. So the point on this is when you make decisions and, and you make them early, they can have dramatic impact on where you're going. And you have to have the vision and the sense of what are the things you're willing to trade off? What are the risks you're willing to take? And are you really willing to walk away from business in order to, to make your model work? The next one was we were in mask inspection. We entered radical inspection. Doesn't look like much. Takes years for it to matter. It's over half of our business today. It takes a long time. You have to be patient. When I bought a machine from the company, it was in here, and I bought it a wafer inspection. I was a customer, and I came in, and they said, well, what are you going to do with this machine? And I said, wow, it'd be good if you know what I was going to do with the machine. They didn't know. They couldn't find an application, but there was a lot of willingness to stick it out and perseverance to stay in it, and ultimately, it took off and, and created a lot of the value of the company today. The next one was this risk-taking. We had two technologies. We had the next generation that was going to be 10 times better than the old product. And then this wild idea in the corner, which was going to be 100 to 500 times. 50 people on the next generation, five guys on the one beyond that. And we were at a point where we're about to ship the product, the next generation, thing called Titan, to IBM. Once again, IBM. And uh, big debate as to what we should do. And at the end, we had a debate and said, well, there was one group of thought that said, let's ship the product that we have, the next generation, and still work on the future one. So once again, very small group, and this one I happen to be involved in, made the decision not to do the next generation, but, but to burn the ships and put all the bets on the long shot technology because our belief was if we ever ship the next generation product, we would never do the other one. It would be successful enough that it would drag us in, customers would like it, we would be left supporting them, and there wouldn't be any bandwidth left to do the long shot. And the long shot is what ended up driving this revenue up to over a billion dollars. Uh, I'm very confident if we hadn't done that, 
we wouldn't have grown the market. We would have kept kind of doing what we did, but it was a dramatic change in the company. You sometimes have to take a bet. The next one was this idea, uh, number five shows inline versus offline. Short story on this is we used to sell one per fab, and the idea was how could you sell multiple? And everybody knew it was a good idea, and I was running a pretty good size organization at the time, and my boss comes to me and says, I want you to focus on this inline option. Um, and I said, well, I got a team doing that. I think it's great. He goes, no, you don't understand. I think you should focus on it. I said, right, it's part of our responsibility, mine. No, no. You should quit doing everything else you're doing and only do this. And uh, it didn't feel like a choice at the time. That was my deal. And, and I was frightened. I'd been at the company. My career was going well. But my view was now I had a chance to kind of blow it. If, in fact, this didn't work, I would have failed. Nobody likes to fail. On the other hand, I had to work on it. There was nothing left to do. I had no other constraints. And they threw one other one at me. They said, don't worry about the budget. So you take away the two constraints people typically have, time and money, and you don't have any excuses left. <laughs> and, and for me, and we've done this again and again inside the company, is how do you get people to focus? How do you create an entrepreneurial environment inside of a big company? One of the things you do is you take people that are high potential, high performance, and say, this is all you're going to do. And we're going to incentivize you. I mean, you're going to get, you'll win if this wins. But that's your job. And we're going to take away your excuses. Um, it worked for me. We, we were successful and drove this. And if I look back on my career and how I've been fortunate in my career, it was that was the tipping point for me, was being assigned to that job, which at the time felt phenomenally risky. But my point is, even inside of big companies, there are these opportunities. And what you really want, whatever kind of environment you're in, is to be exposed to the big opportunities. And the ones that look difficult and scary. And to work without a net, to burn the ships, pick your analogy, pick your metaphor. But I think for me, it was the opportunity to just, this is what you've got to do, is you've got to drive revenue. Uh, the next one is number six, Tencore. So KLA and Tencore, KLA Tencore used to be KLA. And Tencore. I know the name just rolls off your tongue, but um, they used to be our arch archenemy. I was a general manager before we did the merger at KLA, and my message to the team, I try to keep it simple, is make ramp. We're ramping a new product and beat Tencore. And that was kind of it. It was a bumper sticker make ramp, beat Tencore. Uh, and then we merged. The most amazing thing happened to me in that merger is I had maintained very good relationships with the people at Tencore. And my message to all of you is be very careful how you treat your competitors. Because you may well end up on the same team. And you just don't know how things are going to progress. And it doesn't mean you don't want to win. And doesn't mean you don't want to compete as hard as you can. Just remember you don't know how things are going to play out. One of the luckiest things I did is, was to have developed good relationships with the people at Tencore, who then suddenly we all got pushed together. Uh, the reason we got together was Applied Materials, who at this point was not in the market, bought two companies in Israel. And suddenly, the bad guys at Tencore looked a lot friendlier than worrying about applied materials entering our space. So you don't necessarily know how it's going to end. And in that case, uh, this was the catalyst for a lot of the growth that we've had. The last point on this is when I became CEO uh, at the beginning of this year, one of the focuses is on a new strategic plan. And there were a lot of questions we had to answer, and, and I'll talk about some of those in the next couple of slides. One was we had to come up with this vision again. And this looks simple. And, and it should, and to our employees, it's extended as the world's best inspection and metrology company differentiating solutions and customer experience. Sounds like motherhood. Pretty obvious. 
except there was a raging debate inside the board of directors at the time about whether we should get into process equipment. So we did inspection and measurement, but there's all this other equipment called process equipment. And so the fundamental question we had to ask ourselves is were we an inspection and measurement company or were we a semiconductor equipment company? And it sounds like a subtle difference, but they had huge ramifications. Inspection and measurement meant that we weren't going to go compete head-to-head -head with the likes of applied materials. It meant we were going to go inspection and measurement in other segments. If we'd said semiconductor equipment, then we're probably going to do acquisitions inside semiconductor equipment, and suddenly we're going head-to-head. -head. And my view was we couldn't be the best in the world if we did semiconductor equipment, but if we stayed in inspection and measurement, we could be the best. And it was more important to be the best than to be the biggest. And you know, from that standpoint, let's do what we do really well. The other key point is differentiated solutions. There was, there was an idea at this time that you could go and lower your costs, and our customers are driving costs, and show, should we be a low-cost leader? And one of the guys on my staff says, look, if we're doing it in Silicon Valley, it better be daring, dumb, and different. It, it better be innovative. It's not about low cost. Now, you have to drive down cost, but we said we want to do differentiated solutions. We do not want to be a cost leader. We want to have premium pricing with premium performance. And the last one is we knew uh, we had to improve our customer experience. The philosophy of the company early on was it was better to be needed than to be liked. And the idea was you'd create products that people really needed. Well, over time, that doesn't work. The industry gets more mature. You have to make the experience of working with you to, to be one that customers are uh, positive about. The next one was this idea of values. And I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this other than to say you need to have something that guides you, your management team. And, and for me, the, the values that we as the management team, we had values on the wall when I took over the CEO job. But everybody inside the management team said they didn't represent us. And so these are not the list of values. These are the list of our values. And, and they might not be true for other people. And frankly, for us, what matters is what's true for us. Perseverance was one. What we look back in our history is we're in 19 or 20 product lines. Every one of the product lines at one point in time somebody wanted to shut down. Every one. And we just stuck with them. And the reason ultimately we won was because we stuck with them. And so what we learned about ourselves is we don't give up easy. We have to have perseverance. It goes back to when the founder went and heard no 146 times, he went to the 147th. Right? So we keep plugging away. So we want people. The, the reason values become important because they tell you the kind of people that you want. If people don't share your values, they probably shouldn't be on your team. The drive to be better. The industry we're in, Moore's Law, incrementally have to keep improving. So for us, we want people that feel the urgency. What have you done lately? Right? Not what did you do in the past, but you've got to keep earning your keep. Uh, the third one is our industry is too complicated, our products are too complicated, we're too global to not have team players. We used to be okay with people that were just stars. You've got to work on a team. You've got to either be able to lead a team or be on a team. We went and did an offsite and came up with these values. I came back and let a, people, a couple of senior guys go. And I said, I think you're great, I think you'll do really well, just not here. And the reason is because they couldn't be on a team. When I went off and became a CEO of a smaller company, that's fine. That's great. It, you know, for my, it was more for me about having the right fit, having the right, the, the people that shared each other's values. Uh, this is an interesting one, is the idea of being honest, forthright, and consistent. Saying what's on your mind. We used to have a lot in, in the company, people would manage the information. As you get bigger, they're afraid to tell you like it is. And my view of that is management gets what they deserve. 
if people tell you bad news and you, know, you shoot the messenger, they're not going to tell you bad news anymore. But eventually it's going to come out. So my view on a lot of these is they start at the top. You've got to be willing to recognize that if you want people to be honest and forthright with you, you've got to be that way with them. So I came, we had an executive review. We review all the businesses quarterly. And one of the general managers, after we rolled these out, came in and he had his chart of numbers, which was plan, forecast, and then he had the HFC column, which is what he really thought. And the numbers were different. People used to manage the information. What you want is people to tell you what's really going on. Uh, and last, indispensable, and, and this is one we debated as a team, but in the end, for us, we want to make products that our customers can only get from us. We want to be indispensable for our customers. The best, <laughs> the highest satisfaction point is when people tell me, we couldn't have done this without you. You, KLA 10 Core, the only way we were able to solve this problem is because of your capability. Those are the products we want to build. We don't want to build the lowest, cheapest commodity. We want to build products that are technically differentiated where we're indispensable. The other part on strategy was we said we focus on core semiconductor, but we will extend outside into other fields. And so we're starting to do acquisitions. We're looking at ways to extend inspection and measurement beyond what we do today as a growth strategy. But the other thing we said, we're in 19 businesses. We'll only play in ones where we can win. And we were number one in 17 of them. But one we weren't, and we said we couldn't win, and we were against Hitachi, and they had a product that satisfied the market, and the market requirements weren't changing, and we shut it down. Because we said, if we can't add value there, we don't want to play. So part of the strategy, the essence of strategy is often what you're not going to do. You can't do everything. Right? You have to make these strategic choices about what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. The last slide I have is on the three constituents. And this is kind of my vision if I flash forward a few years, FY10. How does it feel from each constituent's perspective? From shareholders, from our customers, and from our employees. And, I, and my vision is that our KLAC, our sticker on the NASDAQ, the people will think we're a great investment because we've outrun the market, we've outperformed the market. We've done better than their other investments. And they'll think that our business model is good. We have high gross margin, low operating costs. We continue to make money. We have integrity, top and bottom line growth. So we'll grow not just revenue, but profitability. And companies like ours that get valued on your profitability, it's not just revenue growth. You've got to grow bottom line faster. Customers that they'll view us as we help them succeed. And we do that by having differentiated uh, inspection and metrology solutions not just point by point great products, but also a broad portfolio of them, and that our support and how we support our customers. And lastly, that our customers, our employees, will view that we're a great place to work because they feel affiliated and they're inspired. Uh, my experience has been when people leave companies, it's because of their boss. And when they stay, it's because of their friends, all else being equal. And so you want to create an environment where you have responsibility for the people managing that they understand that's their job is to create an environment of affiliation and inspiration. Personal growth. Most of the people we employ, virtually all are professionals. Most of them four-year degrees at least. So they want to grow in their careers. My job, our job, as a management team is to enable them to grow, and enable them to continue to, to take on more responsibilities, to have the opportunities that I had. And then lastly, the idea of rewards and recognition. Um, you know, clearly, I, th I think money is a motivator for people. I've heard some of you, when I talked to you before, hopeful that you'll make a lot of money in a startup. Um, but in the end, I think for a lot of people, money isn't really a motivator. Money's not a motivator. It'll be a demotivator. 
if you're not treated fairly in companies like ours. It's much more about fairness. And it's fairness relative to their contribution, relative to others, and relative to what's available on the outside. Now, startups make more because the risk-reward profile is very different. Right? Some startups, for every YouTube, there's a lot that don't make it. You all know that. Right? So the question, if, if you're in my job, what you want to do is provide an environment where your rewards and recognition are fair. And when people, they're not demotivated by them. But typically, it's pretty down the list in terms of compensation. Other things matter a lot. Personal growth and this idea of feeling part of something that matters and, and being motivated by that organization, those are really critical. Those are the prepared slides. I, I would certainly like to take questions that you have at this point. Yes? So, in looking at um, that last slide, so to me, this looks like a view that any company might um, strive towards. So, just a question on um, do you have metrics associated with, like a balanced scorecard, some sort of dashboard associated with how you measure your success in these three realms? And if one of those the biggest, which one would it be? Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. Um, and there always is this, this question of how generic you are versus how specific. I think a couple things that make it less generic are we are talking about differentiation in inspection and measurement. And we're talking about comprehensive solutions in terms of portfolio. Uh, so that matters to me. And the, and the way that gets measured, I measure differentiation by our gross margin. And so my view is the higher your differentiation, the more you get in gross margin because that's a measure of how your customers value you, the differential they're willing to pay, and also market share. And of course, for us, it's long-term market share. Uh, this one's easy. Long-term, it's just shareholder value. I mean, that, that becomes the metric. But to your point, that's kind of what everybody has. Uh, in our business model, our focus is on we have higher R&D percentage than most every other company in our industry, but our gross margin is higher. So our gross margin is 57 58%. And the nearest rival is probably 51%. So we spend more on R&D. So our business model works. If we get high gross margins, we can afford higher R&D to do innovative, creative products. Uh, so from my standpoint, keeping that business model in line. Uh, the growth metrics, we want to grow faster than the industry. And right now, the forecast for the industry, you know, let's say it's 10%, we would want to go faster than that. But more important for us over the next few years is growing the bottom line even faster. So we do have metrics in each one of these. these. This is where metrics get really tough. You know, is how do you measure employee satisfaction, employee productivity? And so those, there are metrics that exist in those. You look at turnover, you look at retention, um, but that's a harder one to have clean metrics on. So you do surveys and you try to figure out how do people feel about the company. And, oh, I'm sorry, the second part was if one of those were the biggest circle, which one would it be? <coughs> Are you a shareholder? <laughs> <laughs> uh, For me, I think it's employees. I, I, I mean, I, I think that if you don't do that, the other parts won't come. Uh, you know, if, if you focus on, and, and it's tough because it's the hardest one to measure, but your employees, in our case, our product turnovers every two years. We have a new product in every product line. You know, so if your teams aren't creative, they aren't, then you're not going to satisfy your customers. And, you know, my view is the shareholder is the resultant of doing the great work on these two. That's, that's what you end up with. But if you focus too much on that being the metric, uh, certainly over a short term, then I think you, do some, you have some odd behavior that's long term not healthy. Okay. Yeah. Can you explain how you uh, expand it from one product line to matching product line? Is it through uh, acquisitions or in-house 
Uh, great question. Uh, the question is how do we expand from one to multiple product lines? Combination of both organic growth. So we had some cases where we take teams. Uh, one, at one point in my career, I got to do that, which I was spun out of an existing division and went to a startup. And same kind of deal where, okay, you think you're so smart, get us into a new market. Um, and the other one is through acquisition. So along with Tencore, we've done others, and we build the portfolio in both ways. And my view is you've got to do both if you're a company like ours. Uh, you, because you, to get the growth rate you need, you've got to look at it. The problem with, most, with acquisitions is most of them destroy shareholder value. They don't create it. So you've got to be very disciplined and strict. You can't fall in love with the deal. You've got to make sure it fits strategically. And you've got to be honest about the, the valuation. And that's part of falling in love with the deal is not paying too much. So we did a combination of both. But the biggest ones um, were through organic and then the, the 10-core merger. That was the other big one. Yeah. So uh, with regard to R&D and also employee company size, uh, as you're going global, how have you seen your strategy? And, uh, are you doing more R&D overseas or are you acquiring more overseas? Yeah. Um, the market size and you expect it to grow in the future and you expect the company size to stay healthy and so Oh, company size can't stay the same. <laughs> no, a company has to grow. I mean, that's the, the public company's got to grow in both profitability and, and revenue. Uh, to answer your first question, R&D, we're doing more internationally, globally. We're also doing more alliances and partnerships. So as our components become more critical, our ability to work with suppliers becomes more critical because they become a key part of our, our technology. For example, Carl Zeiss is an optics company in Germany. Uh, they make a very complicated lens for our latest inspection tool. The, the lens is this big, half a million dollars, and it's the part that, that enables us to image the devices. So there we've got a, they're doing R&D and we're working closely with them. We have other suppliers in, uh, throughout Asia. And we have an R&D center now. I mentioned we have some in China that we're doing a little bit, but we're doing a fair amount in India along software and algorithms. So my view is this globalizes over time. And so one of the challenges for any company is how do you manage global R&D? It used to be the rule was everybody's in the same room and you know, people did studies on how many feet apart you wanted people sitting. And that just doesn't work anymore. Now you do round the clock, but you're navigating several time zones at the same time. Yes? Uh, you mentioned that you pay close attention to your competitors. What could a company like Apache or Applied Materials do right now today that would make your day or conversely give you metrics? Um, that is the nightmare I have every night, by the way. <laughs> I, we do. We track our competitors uh, very closely. We do detailed analysis. We have red teams which go and effectively become the competitor. And they go through and they figure out with the patent portfolio, with the technology, with their starting point, what's their logical next move. Uh, we also mock up competitive tools. So we'll have our labs. We will build the competitor technology and we'll analyze what can it do versus what ours does. Um, I think the, they are kind of doing what we've expected. We've gotten pretty good at predicting what they're going to do. And the answer is if, if they were to leapfrog us in technology, and there are a few of those out there, you know, my view is market changes, in our industry at least, at technical discontinuities in one of two places. Either customer's discontinuity, they go to a new technology and people aren't ready, or in the inspection and measurement technical discontinuity where suddenly, in our case, we went from UV, from UV light to deep UV. And that was a place we could have lost a bunch of market share if we haven't, hadn't executed. 
So it's kind of a generic, uh, to answer your question, generic because it goes product by product, but we absolutely are reviewing those on a constant basis. And the, the products that I worry the most about are the ones where we have a large share and there's no competitive noise out there. That, that's what I really worry about because I know somebody's chasing us. Uh, our business model is too attractive to not get chased by people. So we know they're, they're working on it. I wish they'd give up, but they don't appear to be willing to do that. <laughs> yes? In the book, The Inventor's Dilemma, Clayton Christensen wrote about the difficulty of uh, encouraging innovation in companies when they reach like their Can you talk to us about your thoughts on that, and, and how will you encourage innovation, um, especially in light of Moore's Law running out of the bit of steam? Yeah. Um, I know the book. <laughs> we, we had our own uh, crisis around that a few years ago in terms of the fear that we were going to get taken out by a, a lower tech solution that we would ignore, right? The, the basic classic problem. Uh, what we do is we spin out kind of what I mentioned. We have these small units where they're wholly focused on winning in those markets. And, and the tyranny of the large, I mean, the thing you worry about is companies get too big and nobody feels the heat. Nobody owns winning a market. So we intentionally split our organization so that you have smaller units that are focused very heavily on uh, innovating. And sometimes, you know, our view is if we're going to cannibalize something, why we should be cannibalizing it, right? In other words, if there's a new technology approach. So we also do KT Ventures, where we fund, uh, with venture funds, we'll fund innovative startups that might look like they'll bring something to us in the future. And we'll do acquisitions along the line. So we'll do a combination of organic with small focus groups. We'll do M&A and we'll do investment and venture. But it's, it is an ongoing concern, is, is how are you going to get taken out? Barriers to entry, what analysts will tell me is they'll say, why can't people compete with you? Because uh, a lot of people have come and gone, and the answer is barriers to entry are very high in our business. So on the one hand, the growth rate is probably somewhat capped, but the barriers, it's very expensive to bring capital equipment to the market. It's probably $50, $60 million to bring a product to market. And then you've got to have worldwide support systems, and there aren't that many customers. So customers tend to favor buying from the large larger players. Yes? Um, is product your only differentiation or is something like quality of service also considered to be a, a differentiation? I, I'd say that um, not just product, application support is, is one where we figured out a few years ago that our products, using them is very difficult. Uh, and we actually came here and started hiring postdocs out of Stanford to do characterization of our tools. And that becomes the secret sauce. I would argue that some, we have 350, 400 applications engineers in the company, many of them very well educated. And I would say that in some cases, if that same team went on another product, competitor's product, they might be able to make that competitor's product beat our product. So absolutely. Um, it is the combination of the tools and also the applications engineering and understanding the problem we're solving, the intimacy that we have with our customers. My view is you've got to learn simultaneously across all these fabs and keep the learning rate high. And that's what differentiates us. Yeah. Instead of technology and terms of businesses, can you elaborate some on the delicate relationship you have with suppliers and how that fits into your triangle here? Yeah, that is an, it is another constituency. Um, it is delicate because we are not big enough in terms of the amount we purchase to be huge customers for some of our suppliers. So we have to bring something else to them. And, and what we bring is, uh, for many of them, we work on the hardest problems that they'll ever see. And the, the reason is because the problems we're trying to solve are so difficult that 
if they're able to do that, they will benefit because it would be pathfinding for them. And we'll fund R&D uh, as a result. And we have strategic relationships with a lot of them. And the result is they'll get ahead and we will benefit from that relationship. But you do have to, you have to manage it over the long term. And it takes a, a fair amount. I spend more time with suppliers now uh, by far than, than I did say five years ago where most of my time would have been more with customers. Yes. How does corporate social responsibility fit into these three situations? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you, you know, I, I, think it, I think it is a challenge for companies like ours to, to find how do we fit in that system. And, um, and, and I know that if there's one area uh, that I'm getting pressure, for example, from my wife on, it's, uh, it's how do we become more prominent, a better uh, corporate citizen and, and you know there's some obvious things you have to do but over time I, I do think it's it's a great question and I'd say we haven't answered that one you know for so many years a lot of startups like ours were more focused on these three right yeah initially you said Kaylee was basically enabled by but it's interaction with IBM I suppose that's true how many companies but, uh, so do you, do you, is there a single largest consumer of KLA products now, or are you delivering to more smaller, um, you know, smaller things? Yeah, I wouldn't say smaller. I, I would say uh, the semiconductor industry is still 20 companies make up 80% of the sales. And the largest ones are the usual suspects, Intel, Samsung, TSMC. Uh, and you go down the list. And so they're all very strong, and they all influence us. but. Uh, IBM was bigger relatively back then than anyone is today, and that's probably healthier for the industry. So I, they all put, and they push us in different directions. They absolutely push us a little bit different. The Intel world, there are different needs to satisfy people that make microprocessors than people that make memory, and people that do foundries that do manufacturing for others, they have other needs. So if, if you're in a position like ours and you have high market share, you've got to satisfy all of them. Uh, the other thing that's happened in the information age is they all share information all the time. And one of the messages my team is, if you screw up in Dresden, they will know about it in Singapore. Um, you know, so you've got to be on your game everywhere. And that's, that's another challenge. It also, by the way, creates a barrier to entry for people because they know that they've got to satisfy multiple customers at the same time. As far as pricing strategy, is that pressure The pricing strategy? Um, absolutely, there have... You know, been attempts by customers to share information, and you know we try to price fairly, and, and you know, but that's obviously an area that, that people try to get leverage on the suppliers, and you know our responsibility is to create more value. So it's an ongoing challenge. Yeah. What do you do for the development of your people? We do a number of things. Um, one is new opportunities in terms of different responsibilities and taking uh, different roles. We have. Uh, some mentoring programs that go on in terms of inside and hooking people up with more senior level people where they get exposure and opportunity. Uh, but we're still startup-like in the sense that the best thing we do for our people is give them new opportunities in terms of job rotation. Uh, not a formal rotation program, but throwing them into the mix and, and giving them different opportunities to take on new challenges. And there is a formal succession program that we run uh, that I sit in every quarter we go through all the high potential high performance employees and think about what kind of development opportunity they need what kind of experiences haven't they got that would round them out uh, we'll do targeted 360s with people in other words we'll get feedback if somebody is in a development role of how can we help them get to the next level 
And so we do a number of things, but th this is another area that I think that um, you know is ongoing and, and more work to be done for us, for sure. Yes. Uh, since one of your main strategies is merger and acquisition, and different company have different value. Yes. And what how can you handle the value of the new company? For example, what did you do when you merged with Tenco? Yeah, it's a great question. Is is how do you uh, can you really check for is there alignment between the values? Um, Tencore it was pretty close in terms of the values, with the one exception is is KLA was more focused on competitors and Tencore is more focused on customers, and uh, it was an interesting difference where you know we had the kind of bear in the woods you know the old story we thought we if we could outrun the other guy that was what mattered and they were more customer focused. Our view now is when we look at acquisitions. That's one of the tests, is do they share values? We just acquired a company, a public company, for about $450 billion last, uh, just closed on it a couple weeks ago. And that was one of the screens we went through when we were evaluating them, is did we, did we think that, that we shared values, and did we think that that was going to work? The other thing we do is, is try to, without overtaking the company, is put some management into the company and some KT people that have experience with our company and get some cross-pollination. Likewise, take people from the company we're acquiring and have them get some experience at, at KLA. But it is, it is a, it's a real challenge, absolutely. I think you hit a good point. And particularly when we acquire startups, and we've done that as well, uh, is you acquire them because they've been successful and innovative. The last thing you want to do is load them down with a bunch of process and slow them down. So we've had to be thoughtful about how we do that as well. Yes. Hi, Rick. I have a multi-part question. Okay. Uh, the first part is that uh, since the mid-90s, there's an increase of uh, usage of performance-enhancing software in the semiconductor industry, like advanced process control systems and so on. What, where do you see that going, and what percentage of your budget is currently towards that sort of software? And overall, who are like your main competitors? and? And what are you doing to stay ahead with, with that sort of software that increases yield and performance productively? Yeah. And what is its role? Because, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's improving the, the overall value of these businesses and, and their different business units and the products. You know. Right. Uh, good questions. Let, let me start with the, the idea that there's performance-enhancing software, steroids kind of software. And it's really about... Um, APC is advanced process control, so taking input, feeding back, and closing the loop. We were in that business. We bought a startup that did that business, and we ran it for a while, and we realized that we shouldn't be in that business. And the reason was that it was really our customer's business. And so what we ended up doing was getting out of it, and our view is we'll enable it. And so what we'll do is provide data to people so that they can do their, their APC, but we wouldn't try to provide it. Where we, what we did instead is try to provide more software on our tools themselves. Uh, our customers are funny in the sense that they're willing to write big checks for capital equipment, but they don't like writing checks for software. And so our view is instead of fighting that battle, embed the software into the hardware, and even customers would tell us, just put it on the hardware, we can pay for it. Otherwise, I've got to go through a big justification cycle. Um, so we ended up embedding it and distributing it more on our products and trying to enable them to do APC as opposed to trying to sell them the complete solution. But we did go down a path of thinking we could sell the whole solution and found out that it was, it was competing with our customers generally not a great strategy. 
right, to compete with your customers. And so we didn't, in that case, we backed off. But we are absolutely enabling it. And that's our view is we can provide more value if we do that. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about uh, your global R&D and how you think about organizing that? Who does what? How do you Yeah, sure. Um, so today we do R&D in a number of different places. I mentioned that. We have uh, one product line. I was talking to somebody, the, the person managing it. And we have an operation in Israel that produces part of the product. Algorithms are done in Russia. Integration is done in the U.S. And software is done in India for one product line. And the beauty of that, if you're running that product line, you don't have to sleep. You can be up all the time talking to somebody on your team. Um, but the, the challenge is, is integrating it. And, and I think that you know, what we figured out is we have to break it into modules to the degree that we can and have modules, complete modules done in specific locations. I would say we haven't cracked this problem yet, but we've gotten better. And the degree with which we can move whole products or whole modules to say some of these developing regions, like India is a good example. We took one software product and moved the whole thing to India. That worked well because they had complete responsibility. The distributed R&D is one what I'd say we haven't cracked. We have some examples where we're doing well, but others where, uh, let's just say we're learning. We, we continue to evolve and learn that. But it does become a, a imperative for success going forward that the companies like ours get better at that, no question. No question. The other so far, India software, Russia algorithm. We're looking at Singapore for integration. We're going to move a lot of our. We're expanding in Singapore, partly because we can integrate products there. We can do manufacturing. We, we can do support for our customers there, and it's a better place to manage India from in some respects than California is. And so you have it's just closer in, in geographical terms. Uh, so we're, we're doing more than that, but it's really product by product we think about how do we, each product, what parts do we do where, and that's an ongoing, evolving strategy. Five years from now, it'll look different. We'll have more things done elsewhere for sure. Yeah. It almost sounds like you don't even be in California at all. Why are you still <laughs> I mean, why not manage India from India instead of from Singapore? Because you're closer, but you're still not there. So like. Why not Because our um, most talented, most experienced people are in California. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, you're absolutely right. I mean, I have to get on an airplane to see 99% of our customers. I mean, there's nothing left in Silicon Valley in terms of people that build semiconductors. There's headquarters here. Um, but the answer, you're right, but it comes down to we have these teams, and they're very capable, and they're very talented, and you can't just reproduce them. And they don't seem to all want to move to India. Um, I've asked. Uh, and plus, you have this incredible infrastructure here, right? And, and you still, uh, we all know it. I mean, this is still, in spite of all the people saying that Silicon Valley was going to be overtaken by other areas, it continues to be phenomenally innovative. And so we benefit from that. Um, and there's also no one location you could go. Because our industry is so split out, you could say, well, we'll go to India. But there aren't any customers in India either, right? So you're not customer facing. Well, we'll go to Taiwan, except for that's 20% of the market. It's still not all the market. So there's no one place you could go. So California is pretty good. Um, but it is expensive, and it, you know, so you want to be careful about what you do here. And you want to make sure that as you're balancing your global resources, you don't forget that it's people that created these products in the first place, and they're here. Right? And we keep bringing in new ones, and they keep creating new new products for us. So we're here for we're here for the long haul.
IBM had just moved their purchasing headquarters to China or right now. Yeah. They would do it. Um, do you see a um, more distribution of your company to other parts of the world, for example, purchasing or? Yeah, sure. There, absolutely, globalization in some areas is, is already happening, and, and we're doing some of that. And you know, you just have to be thoughtful that you've got people here, and you don't want to fully displace them. Uh, and so you have to manage it over the long term. But that's what I was saying: is there are certain things that you don't need to be here. But the innovation, and creativity, and the R and D uh, we have the, the formula for success has been the teams that we have today, and they are working on the next generation. Some of these other functions can be offshored, and and we're doing that just like basically everyone is. Right, and that'll continue to, to happen over time. Yeah. Um, you've been using UV, and you've mentioned UV just now. Yes. Uh, any plan or any goes actually UV? Actually? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you've got an answer for us, we're looking at a sub 200 tool right now that we need. Um, we also do electron beam inspection. We do a fair amount there. So. Uh, we work a lot with Stanford on that, by the way. We have a lot of the resources. To, I was just—I was going through a list in my head of the people running our divisions. We have a fair number from, from here, uh, doing that. And we're looking at all wavelengths. We're looking at all materials, and we continue to evolve in terms of illumination technologies and collection and data processing. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So your company's obviously made a lot of good choices. Um, what do you think has been the worst um, misstep that uh, Kelly Tinker has taken so far? What did it? Uh, great question, and as I think we talked before, you sometimes learn from your failures maybe more than from your successes. Um, we tried to do the CD-SEM product where for 10 years where we tried to compete with Hitachi to displace them in a market that they owned uh, with a technology that in reality wasn't, wasn't better. Um, so the hard part for that for me is we did win some accounts. Uh, but ultimately, we decided to get out. And, and what's really tough on that is really tough on the teams that are doing that, because they were doing great work. They just happened to be working on a product that didn't have a chance. Uh, and also, you let down some customers. And so you have to navigate and manage that customer involvement. But what it taught me is, is one of my jobs is to help us avoid making those kind of decisions, because they take huge tolls on the employees, and, and on especially the people that are customer phasing that have to go back and explain why we've changed our mind and they liked our product. Um, so I think rigor along those lines. And we've had a fair number of failures inside of new product developments. I think that's a natural thing that you know, when you go after products, the key is just can you fail quickly? And the problem I had with this one is we failed slowly. And I'd like to fail quickly and get on and, and keep going after new opportunities. Yes? Is there a concern in this globalization of uh, some international incident or some situation where all of a sudden you may have no access to, let's say, your team in Russia or something. And will that bring the company down or will you have some kind of backup or, or redundancy to recover for that? Yeah, so we have a pretty good sized division in Israel, in the north of Israel, and uh, near Haifa. And so we went through that just a couple of months ago. and, and uh, it is a concern, but then the cost of having redundancy in the system uh, becomes really high. And so instead, what you do is you, you try to navigate, try to manage it, try to have backup plans. But you never have an instant backup plan because you can't afford that. Uh, in that case, they, were sh they assured me that they were 97% of the people were showing up. Uh, it's amazing the resiliency. In that case, they brought in teachers and did daycare at work so that the employees could bring their kids in. 
Uh, but their big message to us is we're still working, we'll st we're still going. And so I think that would be a, a recent example. Obviously, the tsunami in India was one we were affected, we're in Chennai. Um, so there are things that happen and there are things that you're concerned about, but you know, you have to be careful about putting in redundancy because it's very expensive. And who could predict? You know, we, we could have a big earthquake right here and we don't have backup for that. So some of it, there are, there are things you can do along risk management, but um, there are limits to it. We do, have a, we do have the normal plans of backing up information, but we don't have redundant teams. Yes. How do you see the future of India and China market? The future of India and China? Uh, just up and to the right. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's just stunning. I mean, the, every time I go there, I'm just amazed at the, at the progress in both countries. Uh, so for us, uh, what's driving our industry growth now is the fact that the consumer market is the big, biggest driver for us, and the biggest driver of the consumer market is the emerging economies of India and China. And so for us, I, I think that it becomes very critical that we understand those markets and how to compete long term. And uh, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of uh, great potential in both of those. And, and beyond that, I think it'll help the economies and help a lot of the people in those parts of the world, which is, those are all great things. So, thank you all.